Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. This edition of Radio Curious is the first of two conversations with Eli Ehrlich, a woman who was born a male, and her mother, Dr. Carla Longshan. Eli Ehrlich is the founder and executive director of Trans Student Equality, based in San Francisco, California, and a student at Pitzer College in Claremont, California. Dr. Carla Longchamp is a family physician in a rural Northern California community. Together they share their family's experience when Eli realized she was female and her parents' subsequent acceptance of who she is. Our conversation, recorded on January 15, 2014, at Radio Curious, began when I asked Eli when she knew she was a girl. I realized that I was a girl when I was eight years old. It wasn't really a eureka moment or anything like that. It just kind of came to me. I realized when I was, um, I guess, mostly interacting with the um, boys at the time that I didn't really fit in with them as well and that I didn't really prefer presenting um, as they did, I guess. (laughs) So what did you do with those feelings? Well, because I wasn't really aware that it was at the time sort of taboo to identify as transgender or not identify with one sex assigned at birth. I expressed myself. I wore skirts to school. I um, I stole my sister's lip gloss. That was a lot of fun. Um, And I played with other girls a lot. In the life of an eight, nine-year-old, were there expectations in your family from your parents or from your sister as to the change that you took over and beginning to control your own life at a relatively young age? Well, unfortunately, my family wasn't very educated on the topic of transgender youth, and so they weren't accepting at all. And because I'm from such a rural community, people weren't really educated on it there or at my school where I experienced a lot of teasing, bullying, and harassment from the, um, not just the students, but also the teachers. You're here in the studios of Radio Curious with your mother, Carla Longchamp. Carla, what did you see in your daughter? Well, when she was eight years old, I did not see her as being even particularly feminine. Uh, She was a fairly shy leading up to then in third grade she started to make some friends and started to be a a little bit more outgoing she had a a couple of male friends but mostly female friends but all throughout her childhood her early childhood she did play with boys and girls we were a family that did not follow traditional role models in our household and so to have a child who was identified male, play with females in imaginary play was, wasn't was anything that we noticed as being unmasculine. Uh, and we really didn't have any thought as to our child being uh, different in any particular way in terms of uh, her gender identity. 
is it a fair assumption that as a physician in a small community, you're familiar with pediatrics and child development? Oh, yes, most definitely. So when your uh, son identified as a girl instead of a boy, what was your reaction? Well, my first reaction, my gut reaction was um, that I was devastated Having worked in the medical field for many years um, before this, I, I had this image of a transgender person being at fairly high risk, having difficulties with depression, with relationships, with employment. And I was very, very frightened about the future of my child who I wanted her to have, to grow up, get married, have a career, all the things that I had. And as a person who is transgender, I didn't think that that was as likely to happen. And so I was, I was emotionally very, very upset. Eli, did you perceive that from your mother and perhaps your father as well? That is definitely something that I was um, somewhat aware of at the time. And it's really unfortunate that we perceive transgender people this way because we now know that transgender children with parents that are accepting are um, a lot less at risk than transgender um, children without parents that are accepting. So how did your family deal with this? Well... First of all, I did research. I purchased books, read articles. I spoke to psychologists and psychiatrists from all over the country. I talked to um, my peers who I work with about it. And I spent some time talking to my, my uh, child's teacher Um. And this is what I this is what I found out. There's very there was this was 2003. There was very little research done on transgender children. What research there that I could find had significant methodological issues. And um, one study that I ran across, and this is a study that is still quoted to this day, is that children who are gender variant have perhaps a 20% chance of persisting into adulthood. What does that mean, persisting into adulthood? Persisting and becoming transgender, transitioning into the um, opposite gender. Can we talk more about you, Eli? Am I correct in assuming that you had outside influences on your body as you were maturing, hormone treatment and perhaps other things? Um, yes, that's correct. What my mom was talking about is a perfect example of how quantitative studies are used to oppress victimized groups even further. And it's very unfortunate that we're seeing this happen. And as a trans woman, my body has been policed my entire life. Um, sometimes when I was younger, I did want to play with trucks, but I wasn't able to because I had to consistently express that I was a girl. 
which is something that's very unfortunate that trans kids have to do. We should just, what I wanted to be able to do was just say, I'm a girl, I want to be treated as one, and then everyone would respect that. That didn't necessarily happen. Unfortunately not. Not, not across the board. <laughs> oh, no, definitely not. I um, I went about six years without people respecting my identity, which was very hard on me psychologically and emotionally. So when you say your body has been policed all your life, what do you mean? I mean that um, trans women have expectations of how they're going to present and how they're going to act. Where do those expectations come from? Um, There's certainly um, sociological expectations that are very ingrained in our culture that comes from not just sexism, but also transphobia and um, many other distinct problems in our society. This... um, for me personally, I, was, I wasn't able to express my sexual identity as bisexual. When I was younger, I was told I had to be straight or I wasn't a real woman. I wasn't able to express that sometimes I, wear, I like to wear darker colors or I would be policed and told I wasn't a real woman. Who were the police? These were peers, teachers, even my parents. Are your parents still policing you? Um, Definitely not. They've been absolutely wonderful since I was about 12, 13, when I was able to finally really get into um, deep discussions with them about my gender identity. So how did you manage that at at the age of puberty? Well, when I was in eighth grade, um, I guess this was one of my breakthrough moments when I realized I was not going to be able to um, really present this way and be comfortable with myself or really be able to interact with other people. And so at the end of eighth grade, there was a graduation ceremony with a few hundred people, um, my peers and other people from my town. And so I... um, I decided I had to come out before then because I wasn't going to walk down the aisle to graduation with um, um, being forced to wear male clothes. And so I came out to my parents again in a way with um, leaving a little, I think I'm transgender, now what pamphlet on my mom's bedside. Unfortunately, I still had to go through the ceremony, but I, I mean, I was so miserable there and so visibly miserable that they... Um, they were willing to accept that this wasn't right for me and that I was, I needed to transition. And what happened, uh, Carla, from your perspective? Well, from my perspective, when Eli was in seventh grade, I went to a conference on transgender health. And I basically had my world turned upside down. I met um, physicians and lawyers and social workers and all kinds of wonderful people who were transgender, who were married and successful and happy. And I also learned a lot of things. I heard stories from parents and from children about how their lives, uh, how difficult their lives were until they were allowed to be who they were. I heard the statistic of uh, the fact that that transgender adults report a 
rate of suicide attempts during their youth. Um, I heard about medical treatment that if started early would delay the onset of puberty, very safe medical treatment, so that children could be um, children could be given some time to figure out where they they lie in the gender spectrum and how they want to deal with it. Um, so when when Eli was in seventh grade, I came home. I literally had to corner her in a shower uh, while she was taking a shower, so that because I she just didn't want to talk about transgender anything, and she would not listen to me. She was clearly completely embarrassed and ashamed to talk about her being transgender. So my my perspective at that time was that I wanted to, I was going to accept her no matter what. And I just wanted her to open up to me. And she was not able to open up at that time. That's not particularly unusual when a parent approaches a, a 13-year-old or 7th grader in the shower and starts talking <laughs> well, about uh, developmental and, and sexual issues. Right. The only reason why I had to do it while she was taking a shower was because she couldn't run away from me. <laughs> and she would have because every time we tried to talk to her about her gender identity, she would run. Eli, I want to hear your impression of that moment. But before we go there, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Eli Ehrlich and her mother, Dr. Carla Longchamp of uh, Northern California in a small rural community. Eli is a first-year student at Pitzer College in Claremont, and Carla is a, a physician in a small community. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Eli, let's revisit that moment in the shower. What that was like for you. Um, well, after years of being told that I wasn't able to present this way and that I wasn't a girl, I became very scared of discussing it because I knew that people weren't very open to it. At some point, was there hormonal treatments that you, Carla, authorized and, and you, Eli, accepted or desired? Um, yes, after going to a um, gender spectrum conference in Berkeley, I was able to finally talk to my parents about that and got on hormones, um, luckily, right after turning 15. What did they do for you? Um, well, they certainly made me a lot more confident. I'm, I'm happy with the results. Um, I don't really have much to say that, that pertains to them. At the time, it was unfortunately um, not within the standards of care for a 15-year-old to be on hormones, so it was a bit difficult to find a doctor who was willing to prescribe them to me. Um, luckily, and coincidentally, one of my mom's old colleagues was actually very involved in trans health and was able to um, get them to me, which was really great. And... Um, a year or two afterward, the limitation on age for administering hormones to trans youth was actually overturned, which is really great. And hopefully at the WPATH, our World Professional Organization on Transgender Health Conference, the surgery limitations will also be overturned um, on age for trans youth as well. Have you had surgery? 
I have, but I don't really want to get too much into that. Besides that, it's very important for youth to have access to surgery and that medical care cover it. I realize that's a personal area, and I respect the boundary that that you have. But in broader terms, rather than personal terms, could you address that? Definitely. Well, transgender people have more expectations on um, whether they're going to get surgery or not. And that's also another form of policing where transgender women are expected to have like this surgery and that surgery, etc. And also pertains to trans men and really most trans people. Um, It is a big issue for the trans community. One important statistic to keep in mind is that less than half of trans women end up going through any form of surgery. This, This isn't really a requirement to be trans as it's often shown to be in the media. So when you say trans woman or trans man, that's what the person has chosen to be as to how the person was born. Well, it's not really a choice, but trans woman would be someone who's assigned male at birth who identifies as female, and a trans man would be someone who's assigned female at birth who identifies as male. If it's not a choice, what controls? Well, there have been lots of um, hypotheses around what may cause being transgender, but it's not really that important of an issue. And it should, and while it's treated as one, it really shouldn't be. I think that there is a lot of um, biological essentialism that goes around trying to figure out what makes someone transgender, especially when it pertains to brain, which... Um, really could become a problem later in the trans community. I think there should be less of a focus on that and more of a focus on really critical issues in the community like um, like economic justice and homelessness. In other words, keeping biological essentialism a private, personal matter that the individual addresses as she or he deems appropriate. Um, yes, that's well, that's partially correct. What I'm also talking about are recent studies concerning the transgender brain and um, different areas that may be different in transgender people. Also, what you were talking about um, pertaining to someone's genitalia, that's abs- you're, you're right, that is absolutely um, that's absolutely private information and shouldn't be the concern of other people. Tell us about the transgender brain, either one of you. Well, I can start. We, we actually have very different opinions on this. Well, that makes it all the more interesting. Okay. So there are some studies that have come out of Spain that have looked at brain function of transgender individuals who have, who are, they're mostly young adults, who have not undergone any hormonal therapy and have compared them to... Um, the brains of um, non-trans males and females. And what they have found is that there are certain parts of the brain in a trans individual that is identical to that of their affirmed identity. And that's in both males and females. And um, the methodology... Could, could have been better, and I think that there's, there's research that is ongoing. 
but there are areas of the brain that are clearly different in the different genders. And trans brains tend to be, at least in this one study, more like their affirmed gender brain. Can you tell us more about the similarities and the differences? Well, in that study particularly, there was a region of the brain that was similar to the affirmed gender of the person. However, after speaking with a well-known neurobiologist in the community, there, besides that there were methodological flaws in that study, there also is a possibility that the brain could actually change when someone identifies as a different gender than their sex assigned at birth. Um, Carla, let's go back to the uh, time in, in your family's life when your daughter was eight, nine years old and visit some of your observations at that time. Yes. Well, after Eli came out to her classroom and our family, and we made the decision not to allow her to transition, um, she continued to ask us and correct us for a full year when we called her by a male pronoun. She continued at school to correct the school kids and she continued to sneak into the girls' restroom. And, and we put her in therapy. We all went into family therapy. But unfortunately, she got a message loud and clear that we were not going to allow her to transition. And so she refused to talk to the therapist about her gender identity, uh, which was very difficult for all of us. It was also a time when we saw her go from a relatively happy-go-lucky child to an extremely withdrawn child. She stopped talking to us. She stopped talking to her teachers and her classmates. She lost all of her friends. She stopped going out to the playground when she um, during recess. Uh, she did not want to participate in anything, gymnastics and some of the other activities that she had been doing, she withdrew from. And after about a year, she stopped correcting us. And that was a time when she also started to refuse to go out with us, go to restaurants or shopping. Um, traveling with her became an absolute nightmare. She basically walked around with her hair over her head, with her hand over her face, and uh, wouldn't talk to anybody. Um, my dad, who um, lived back, lives back east, used to call her the shadow child because if she, whenever we brought her back east or when he was visiting us, she would stand in a corner of a room and not talk to anybody. Um, if I had walked into a household with a child behaving like that, I would have thought the child maybe had, was autistic. Um, and this behavior continued really until ninth grade. Something happened that brought you together. So, so yes, yeah, something shifted. And she, she had a little bit of a shift after eighth grade when she started to present a little bit more feminine, but still would not talk to us about her being transgender. 
what happened at the end of ninth grade um, was that we basically forced her to go to gender spectrum. She was completely embarrassed about going to this conference, um, didn't want to go, basically walked into the conference with her hand over her head and her hair over her eyes and looking down and not making any eye contact. And the next day we separated and she went into the teen group that they had and we went into the rest of the conference where we were talking to lawyers and doctors and educators on on, um, transgender youth. And we didn't see her for three days. She was gone. She was completely, completely immersed in... um, connecting with teenagers and uh, getting information from physicians and social workers. And we walked out of that conference with a different child. Her shoulders were back. Her hair was out of her face. She was looking at us, and she was smiling and laughing. And it was the first time we heard this child laugh in seven years. And so that was one of the um, most joyful times in my life because I felt like I had my child back. And uh, during the ride from Berkeley to where we live, we peeled away all of those um, defenses. Slowly it was like an onion until we got to this child who was beautiful and happy and, you know, clearly telling us, I am a girl. And we just, we're just back right at her saying, we will, we are with you 100%. Eli, what happened at the Gender Spectrum Conference in Berkeley? Well, I was finally able to interact with people like me. I had never met someone else who was transgender in my entire life before then. And it was just so wonderful to meet other people and other people my age who had similar experiences and identities. Education is such an important part of um, of growing up and being able to be yourself. And I was really happy and lucky to have that finally. Well, Eli Ehrlich and Carla Longchamp, I want to thank you for being with us on this uh, part one of our conversation about uh, transgender people in North America. And um, I'll save the three questions uh, for the end of our conversation on and part two of our program on Radio Curious. Okay. Thank you very much, Barry. Thank you. This is the first of two conversations with Eli Ehrlich and her mother, Dr. Carla Longchamp. Eli is the founder and executive director of Trans Student Equality Resource. The website is transstudent.org. She is also a student at Pitcher College in Claremont, California. Dr. Longchamp is a family physician in a rural California community. The regular questions about a eureka moment, what each would like to do with the remainder of her one precious life, and her recommendation for a book, will be asked at the end of part two in this series with Eli Ehrlich 
and Dr. Carla Longchamp. There are over 500 archive editions of Radio Curious on our website, www.radiocurious.org, where they're free for you to stream, download, enjoy, and share. We appreciate your curiosity, ideas, comments, and questions. You may reach us by email. Our address is curious at radiocurious.org or snail mail 280 North Oak Street, Ukiah, that's U-K-I-A-H, California, 95482, or by phone, 707-462-6541. You've been listening to Radio Curious. Christina Onestead is our associate producer, and I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.